Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast. Episode 73, Exterminate, Annihilate, Destroy. Last episode, episode 72, Drag Me to Hell, I played part one of a more than three hour long conversation I had with listeners Ronnie Demler and Joey Deer, uh, where we discussed our um, the debates recently on my show, the one between Ronnie and Turretin Fan and the one between myself and Hiram Diaz. We're going to um, skip any promotional material and jump right back into that, but to remind you of some of what we talked about, we first talked about how it seems to us as though our um, the passages that we cite in our defense are simply dismissed away as being symbolic of eternal torment, and we talked about a seeming inconsistency since uh, traditionalists seem to think that eternal torment can't be symbolic of the kind of destruction that we uh, think is the case. We talked about Isaiah 66 and 65 and whether or not we're flattening out uh, typology or whether we're conflating type and anti-type. We talked about Jude 7 and how they were uh, punished with eternal fire um, and how that argument on our part doesn't, doesn't ever seem to be seriously addressed or at least sufficiently so. Um, we talked about Revelation 22, which uh, um, which Turretin fan and other traditionalists point to as evidence that the wicked continue to exist after being thrown into the lake of fire. And we talked about why uh, that's certainly not the case. Um, so that's where we left off. Uh, we're going to move now into the second of three parts, uh, where we'll continue to discuss some of the themes that came up in both these debates. So let's jump right back into the conversation. Uh, Ronnie, when, in your argument, one of the, and this is actually one of the key um, planks to just about every argument for uh, annihilationism that I've heard, and that's kind of why I try to do something a little bit different. Uh, but in your argument, one of your, the planks of your argument was that the Bible says only the saved will be given immortality, but that traditionalists must say immortality is granted to the unsaved as well. And in response to that, Turton Fan said, and I, I think this is a word-for-word quote, it's hard to see this kind of immortality as favor from God, except to the extent that it's viewed that it's somehow worse to be annihilated than in eternal conscious torment. Do you think that Turton Fan understood your point and, and addressed the real argument? No. As a matter of fact, so this is an example of an argument that I think he just was not prepared for at all. And so um, I'm not going to hold him necessarily to the answer he gave. I think it was, you know, off the cuff, more or less. Um, so, yeah, he, he didn't address it. And as a matter of fact, as we went through the debate, he repeatedly just affirmed that, yeah, everybody is immortal or everybody will be immortal. Um, you know, whether or not that's seen as favor from God is irrelevant. That that just doesn't come into play in the argument I presented. Um, scripture, again, and, you know, I would love someone to give a, a decent response to this, or at least try. You know, Scripture explicitly teaches that immortality is a gift for the saved only. If you believe in eternal, everlasting torment, you have to believe that everybody lives forever. And again, traditionists will just... Admit that, you know, they'll, and I gave many examples of them saying that everybody lives forever, that nobody really dies, that everybody is immortal. Um, but 
I mean, the only possible example, and maybe one of you could expand on this, is to say, well, when Scripture uses the word immortal or when Scripture says live forever, it doesn't mean the same thing as us when we say immortal or when we say everybody will live forever. Well, well, okay, so Joey, let, let's give you an opportunity to expand on that a little bit if, if you have anything to say. When, when 1 Corinthians 15, uh, in that passage where, where Paul says that the immortal will put on, or the immortal will put on immortality, you know, that's, that to me seems to be a strong support for what Ronnie argued. Um, what do you think about the argument where, that some traditionalists might try to use, which is that this, this immortality, biblically speaking, is uh, something more than just what we're claiming that it is? I think that's precisely what the argument would be, although they tend not to get nearly that in-depth in the literature I've read. Um, the Bible actually uses two different terms for immorality. Immortality. Um, I'm sorry, immortality. <laughs> yes, yes. Immortality, yeah. I, I don't believe the saved have lots of immorality. No, I don't think so either. So there's two terms for immortality. Um, I'll probably butcher the pronunciation, but they're Athanasia and Aftarsia. Um, the first one, Athanasia, that one appears only three times. First um, Timothy 6.16, which is kind of an important passage because that's the one that says that God alone, you know, has immortality. Like, God alone has Athanasia. And it literally just means deathless. Um, the other, Aftarsia, that's the one that comes up in Romans 2.7, which is kind of important because Romans 2.7, uh, according to the NIV version, has says, to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory honor and immortality he will give eternal life that passage you know clearly indicates the only people who then are going to have you know this aftarsia are the saved because they're the ones who are seeking this and get eternal life um now um what was the first Corinthians passage you brought up uh, first Corinthians 15 where Jesus says that the uh that the resurrection is the time when the this mortal will put on immortality and so forth Oh yeah, that one also uses Athanasia at one point. Um, the rest are all using uh, Aftarsia or words based on that word group. Um, but in either case, what we have is the term is the first term Athanasia never being used to, ever to describe the lost, and the other one not only does it never describe the lost, it's explicitly tied just to the saved. I think the traditionalists would make the claim that you know even though Athanasia has never claimed to be what the lost have, that they still will have it because the Bible doesn't say different. But it's not a very good argument because both words, for very good reason, are translated immortality. Okay, but, you know, take that passage from Romans 2, for example, where it says that um, those who seek for glory, not honor, and immortality, eternal life. You know, Jesus says in John 17, 3, that this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So, you know, if the, if the traditionalist is going to say that immortality doesn't only entail deathlessness, but it also entails, you know, a, a closeness with God, then they could just, they could say, well, the, the, the unsaved are not immortal in the way that the Bible speaks about immortality. How would you respond to that? Well, because it's, it's tying both eternal life and this immortality together. Those who seek this immortality also are those who receive eternal life, which means it's not the damned. Right. But, but I guess the point that I'm getting at is that it's, I, I, and I'm trying to be fair here. I'm trying, you know, um, I think the point that I'm, that the traditional, traditionalists are getting at is that, uh, 
could could the damned be tormented for eternal uh, for eternity and thus be alive in some sense and yet not alive in the sense that would qualify as immortality technically yes because the, you know the other word for immortality athanasia which is you know lexically speaking i think it's supposed to be the more literal like not dying one mm-hmm. that one unlike aftarsia or however it's pronounced forgive me greek scholars that one is not is never said to only apply to the saved so they could make the case in theory that yes, the the lost have immortality the way that the Catholic Church uses it when they say an immortal soul, but not the immortality that's specific to the saved. So, like lexically speaking, it's not impossible. It just has to be the case that every time the Bible, uh, you know, refers to the lo- saved having the other one uniquely, that it has to mean it in the figurative sense. Hmm. Yeah. Let, let let me jump in real quickly. Uh, I know this did come up during my debate. I believe, Chris, you asked this in the Q&A section, uh, or at least it came up in that section. Um, I mean, yeah, biblically speaking, I would not say that immortality and eternal life are necessarily referring to the same thing. I think that the expression eternal life can be used uh, in a technical sense to refer to both a length and a quality of life. Um and that's reflected, I think, in the passage that you mentioned. Um, immortality, however, really just means immortality. It, it means endless life, or it means uh, not dying. And you could be immortal and have a good quality of life, or you could be immortal and have a bad quality of life. The answer that traditionalists give is the answer that they have to give, right? Right. Scripture teaches that only the saved will be immortal. Traditionalism teaches that everybody will be immortal. The only answer that they can give is to say, well, the words are being used in a different sense there, and that's why we're not contradicting Scripture. That's fine. I grant them that that's a possibility. But they actually have to show why that's the case. No, they actually have to present us an argument, present us an argument that when Scripture uses these expressions, immortality, it's actually referring to something more than just endless life, or it's referring to something more than deathlessness. It's interesting, that passage in Romans, it says, to those who seek glory and honor and immortality... They'll be granted eternal life. Well, what that tells me is that eternal life is immor- immortality along with glory and honor. Ah, right? It's yes. immortality and something else. So I don't think immortality and you know eternal life are, are synonyms. And right. In my opening, I, I actually you know intentionally never used the expression eternal life. So. Yeah, I think that's really good. I, I think that addresses, I think that explains it very well. And, you know, ultimately what they, I don't think they can do what you're talking about, uh, explaining why immortality means something else. Ultimately what they have to do, um, is say, well, we've got these other passages that we think teach eternal torment, and so therefore we're forced to think that the wicked will, may, will be made immortal in some sense. Um, now, I understand the desire to reconcile scripture with scripture, but like you said, I think that they need to to try to come up with a case for why immortality can mean something, uh, mean something more than simply everlasting, uh, life, you know? Um, but in any case, so let's move on now to Matthew 10, 28, because that came up in both our debates to, to different, to different degrees. Um, but what I wanted to talk about this, uh, primarily, and you guys feel free to chime in as well with, with anything else you want to talk about. Um, if I recall correctly, Turton fan did this, and I've heard traditionalists do it all the time. James White, for example, when we quote Matthew 10:28, that says, uh, "You know, fear not those who can kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell." Uh, Turton fan and other traditionalists will pit it against uh, the Luke 
parallel. Um, Luke twelve five, where Jesus says, I warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, if you hear him. Now, I'm going to turn to you, Joey, for, in a second to explain um, what you think is the proper reconciliation of these passages. But, but here's sort of the challenge. The challenge is we seem to think that Gehenna into which uh, the wicked will be thrown is where they will die. But Luke 12.5, at least kind of in a certain sense on the surface, seems to say that they will die and then be cast into Gehenna. And so the traditionalist is going to say that we're, we've got an inconsistency here in our understanding of these two verses. But, but Joey, how, how do you think that these passages reconcile? Well, it very much depends on what you mean when you refer to death. When I read Matthew 10.28, my take is simply that when it speaks of destroying the body and soul in hell, that it's describing, you know, what happens after the resurrection. You know, the person's been resurrected, they're thrown into hell, their body and soul are destroyed, as the, you know, quite clearly says. And for that aspect, there's not an issue. Now, as Luke um, 12, uh, I believe when we talked about that, we talked about that briefly. Um, and you were saying that one might make the case that, I'm sorry, could you... Uh, yeah, let me try to explain it. Because because in, in Luke 12, verses 4 to 5... Uh, it seems to me that the first thing that's spoken of is the first death, that which people can do to uh, only the body. And then in verse 5, it seems to, it seems on the surface, at least I, up until a recent conversation that we had the other day, it seemed to me to be referring only to the second death. And so in the first death, a person can kill the body, and that's it. That's all they can do. And then in the second death, it's God will kill and then throw into hell. Um which seems to contradict our understanding of Matthew 10.28, since we're saying that they are, in fact, killed in hell, not killed and then thrown into hell. I see. Okay. I got you there. Um, that, that's actually interesting, because until we talked about it before, I had never actually heard it from that perspective. Usually, whenever I'd seen traditionalists bring that up, it was just simply, well, he kills and then throws into hell, kind of making a circular right, reasoning that since it's thrown into hell, it's eternal torment, because hell's a place of eternal torment. But... So with what you're saying there, I think the, just the issue is when it says – I think they're both saying the same thing but differently because when you have Luke, he's directly contrasting men. What can men do? They can kill the body. You know, they can kill you. They can't do anything after, whereas God can kill you in the, fir- you know, the first death, the physical death we all die. God can do that same as man, but God can then also throw you into hell. Whereas with Matthew, I think what it's saying is when it's referring to destroying the body and soul in hell, it's not referring to death and then condemnation. It's basically just saying what happens in hell. Yeah. The, the idea being that it's it's not quite focusing on the same things. So I actually said earlier the opposite. I meant it's not quite focused on the same things. That, you know, in that case it's saying men can kill your body, but God, you know, he can completely destroy you after the resurrection. Whereas Luke is saying men can kill you and then... And then can't do anything more. Right. And then it's like God not only can kill you like they do, but then he'll send you into hell, where, as Matthew adds, your soul and body will be destroyed in hell. Yeah. And, you know, I actually had, I don't have the interpreters that I, or the commentators at my disposal that, that I recall, but I recall looking this up and seeing that, uh, it's not at all an uncommon, uh, interpretation on the part of commentators to say that after he has killed in Luke 12, 5 is actually a reference to God's, uh, that God's role in 
the infliction of the first death. In other words, those who can kill the body, but after that have no more that they can do. God's involved in the killing of the body in that death as well. But then, as you said, he has authority at the resurrection to then cast him into hell, where he says in Matthew 10, 28, both body and soul will be destroyed. Uh, uh, Ronnie, do you, have, do you have any thoughts on this before we move on? I think you guys covered it. Okay, I, I do I do want to say, and you, I, you didn't want to do this, I do want to a little bit because I think it was telling. And we all we all understand that Turk and Fan and I and Hiram and you were all nervous and, and to various degrees unprepared. That's we, we get that. And so I don't want to harp on this too much. But I did think it was telling, and I think other people did as well, that when you pressed Turk and Fan to explain what destroy means in Matthew ten twenty eight, he had no answer except to say that it refers to what happens in hell. I think I think that that's a sign of a poor uh a poor understanding of the passage. I mean, to, to not to not even be able to answer what destroy means, but instead to just say it's whatever happens there, I, I think is 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 a sign that a position is is weak. Would you agree, Ronnie? Or do you just want to say he probably just wasn't as prepared as maybe he could have been? <laughs> well, I mean, no, I, I obviously agree. Um, in this case, I I don't want to say it's because he wasn't prepared. I mean, Matthew ten twenty eight is one of the major passages that always comes up in these debates. Um. Yeah, I, I, you know, to this day, I'm not quite sure how to take um, what he said, other than maybe an admission that to actually answer the question and tell me what, uh, you know, destroy can mean in that passage would be really just be to concede too much to conditionalism. Um, yeah, I was just, I was amazed by his answer, and that's why I tried to push him on it, and when I saw that I wasn't going to get anything better, that's why I decided to move on. Okay. Um, no, destroy obviously. The definition of destroy is not whatever happens in hell, you know, or whatever happens in Gehenna. If you look up in a lexicon, you're never going to get that definition. Destroy means something specific. You know, and this is key to this whole debate. What happens in Gehenna? You know, what, or as most English translations render it, what happens in hell? Matthew 10, 28 tells us with precision what happens there. Um, and it's, it's, it's fairly simple. Okay, um, but that's why I think he didn't really have a good answer for it. Okay, but just just in, so that it can be said, and, and we'll move on because I don't think it'll take yeah. very long at all. Yeah. It, it is sometimes argued that destroy here, in fact, just means to ruin, you know, or, or something like that. But 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 this was part of your opening argument, if I recall correctly. How, how is this word translated destroyed uh, used when when it's speaking of a transitive verb? Uh, in reference to a person, what, what is it, what does it mean when it's used in 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 the Gospels? Right. So if you and you know anyone can do this, just look at how apollomy is used in the Synoptics, and look at how it's used transitively, and it always means something like to slay. Uh, so Herod sought out Jesus, you know, the baby Jesus, to uh, apollomy him, and so it, it is true that apollomy in some context can mean something like. To ruin, uh, or maybe more commonly, to lose, you know, the lost coin or the lost son. Uh, but in contexts like this, it, it just does not mean that. Yeah. Um, and the person who insists that it does, they're really, I think, showing that. I'm sorry to say, they're not necessarily interested in what the passage actually is trying to teach. They're just, in this case, they're more interested in defending traditionalism. Yeah. Um, there's no contextual reason to say that in this case it means to lose. And it would ruin the <laughs> parallelism anyway. You know, it would completely mess up the parallelism. You know, yeah, God could kill the body, but in hell he could, you know, lose the body and soul. Or ruin them. Right, you know. 
Yeah, I, I agree. Um, uh, Joey, another place where Ronnie um, asked Turretin fan what destroy means was in Second Peter t- 2.12, um, where the destruction of people, of the wicked, seems to be compared to the destruction of brute beasts. Now, Turretin fan had pointed out to Ronnie that the word uh, the, the word destruction relative, uh, with respect to the wicked uh, is something more than simply destroyed because it's got this kata prefix. Uh, and so whatever's going to happen to them has got to be much worse than what happens to the, breeze, the, the brute beast to that passage. Uh, how, how do you respond to that? Is something that? Are the wicked going to experience something much more than this kind of simple destruction that awaits brute beasts? Well, two things can be said there. First of all, and this is a less important point, the the use of the kata prefix in that in for the word um, you see the exact word now it's pronounced the use of the kata prefix there is is not in all the manuscripts it's it's unique to the Textus Receptus that you know from the King James mm. so like if you look at the like you notice, there's a website I love that everyone should check out if you don't know Greek thoroughly it's called scripture de- scripturetext.com just scripturetext.com you can uh, look these up. And so for the more modern manuscripts, it doesn't have that in the first place. But even if it did, the point still remains that it's not distinguishing the destruction of animals from the, distinguish- from the destruction of humans. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where, they're, where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of these creatures also be destroyed. The, what the scripture is saying in any translation, including King James, is that the destruction that they suffer, whether it is you know a, a greater destruction or not, is the same as the animals hmm. that you know. Like it's saying likewise. Now King James phrases a little differently, um, and you basically says you know they shall utterly perish in their own corruption. Um, that's actually one reason why this passage, because the English can vary a little bit, it's not a perfect slam dunk. But given how most of the little translations like NASB would, you know, would go, it's indicating that they're suffering the same destruction of the animals. Yeah. And even if, even if it's not direct and literal, like, I'll read the King James. It says, but these as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed speak of evil things that they understand not and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. Admittedly, that's not as strong because it doesn't make the direct connection there, but at the same time, the fact that it's a greater, you know, that it's an utterly perished doesn't in any way take away from what we're saying because it's not as though it was to say the opposite. You know, the fact is they're like animals and like, you know, likewise they'll be utterly destroyed, how it's implied. New American Standard has it much more, you know, succinct to saying like animals, they will be destroyed. If New American Standard is right, you know, then it's very clear annihilationist. If King James isn't, it's not as helpful to us. It's not really against us either because, you know, it's saying they're like animals and then it says, and they shall utterly perish, utterly perish. They shall utterly perish in their own corruption. So, yeah, it ranges depending on translation from, yeah, it's kind of helpful to very helpful. Yeah, and, but in either way, like you said, the, the, the fate of the wicked is here being likened to, not contrasted with, the animals. I mean, the New Living Translation, like animals, they will be destroyed. The New International Version, like animals, they too will perish. I mean, whether we're talking about uh, a kata prefix adding something to it, the point is, that's still the fate of the animals too. Um, because it's saying that what's going to happen to these wicked people will be like what is going to happen, or is, is, what happens to the animals, uh, at least so far as it seems to me. At the very least, you certainly can't make a case for traditionalism from this passage, that's to be sure. 
Okay, well, let's move on then to uh, Hebrews 10.27. Um, I, I want to address this briefly because, you know, Ronnie, at your blog, you wrote a post about consumption and about how traditionalists are forced to say that the fire of Gehenna won't consume uh, the wicked. And and, um, and you asked Turton Fan in the debate if a fire which is burning before things are thrown into it could burn after there's no fuel left. He conceded but said that the wicked could not experience it after they've been consumed. And you took advantage of this and asked him what Hebrews 1027, uh, 10.27 means. Now, he, his response was consume here means that they will be eternally tormented. And, you know, I, I don't want to harp too much on his response. But the question that I have for you, Ronnie, is are you uh, – equivocating on the meaning of the word consume. Well, what is it that the Bible consistently means when fire and consume are connected? Right. Um, I'll, I'll mention the, the whole equivocation charge in a second, but um, yeah, you can't just, again, you can't just make up a, a definition to a word. The fact is that consume does not mean to eternally torment. That's just not what it means. Um, you know, maybe if somebody wants to say, well, this is actually just an image, or maybe it's a type or something that, you know, is intending to communicate everlasting pain, I don't know. They would have to, again, they would have to present an argument. But I, I found his answer just incredible that he would say, well, consume means, uh, you know, to torment someone forever. Uh, no, consume literally just means to eat up. Uh, you know, you could use just like just like the English word. You know, consume. We could consume a cake, or the, you know, a fire could consume uh, a, a wooden house, or something like that. In Scripture, you know, I, I'm not going to say every single time because I haven't looked it up. But the vast, vast majority of times when consume is used uh, with conjunction, uh, in conjunction to fire, it always literally just means for the fire to eat it up, so that nothing is left. You know, just ashes are left, maybe, or something like that. Um, and as a matter of fact, and I believe I mentioned this in the debate, um, if you look up that word, and I believe it's estheo, um, if you look it up in, for instance, Bauer's lexicon, um, you know, it gives a number of related definitions. Um, but there's a secondary definition in Bauer's, and I believe it's the definition is to do away with completely. Mm. Now that's, you know, I don't... I tend to stay away from the word annihilation, but if we were going to define annihilation, that would be a very good definition of annihilation, to do away with something completely. Well, Bowers actually lists Hebrews 10.27 as using that definition, to do away with completely. So if somebody wants to say that it means something other than you know, literal consumption, well, they have to give an argument for why that's the case, a contextual argument for why that's the case. I pressed Turton fan. I said, what in the passage indicates to you that it's not actually referring to consume, right? But instead referring to, I guess, some sort of uh, figurative consumption, whatever that means. And he admitted, he said, well, there's actually nothing in the passage. You know, he, he the reason he's interpreting it this way is because of what he thinks he knows from other passages that referred to, uh, you know, final judgment, which again, I just thought was incredible. Yeah. You know, in my opening, I, I said, 
Exodus 3.2 says that the burning bush was burning with fire and yet was not consumed. And then I cited Isaiah 5, which talks about the tongue of fire consuming stubble so, so that dry grass collapses into the flame. I mean, uh, it seems to me that there is a very consistent use on the part of Scripture that when consume is connected with fire, if it says it does consume rather than not consume, as was the case with the burning bush, it burns down to nothing. Um, in fact, I've seen traditionalists sometimes point to other uses of the word consume outside of the context of fire, like Jesus was consumed with anger or something like that. And they'll try and illegitimately transfer the totality of that to this to these passages that talk about what fire will do when it consumes. Uh, and, and it just strikes me as absurd. But, but one of the things that you wanted to point out, Ronnie, when, when we were going over this a couple of days ago, you, 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 you asked the question, is the language ever going to be strong enough? for the traditionalists. I mean, what do you want to say to that? Uh, yeah, and before I say that, uh, let me make a quick point, because I need to address it about the whole equivocation charge, because mm. uh, I, I forgot to mention it. So somebody um, accused me of committing the fallacy of equivocation on my blog post, where I quote Hebrews 10.27, and then I quote, I don't know, eight or so you know, famous, well-known traditionalists who basically just explicitly contradict it. Uh, that would be as it, you know, that, let me make an analogy. Imagine that I came along and I said, Jesus is not the Son of God. Jesus is not the Son of God. And somebody in response quoted me a number of scriptures that explicitly just said, Jesus is the Son of God. Imagine if I accused them of committing the fallacy of equivocation. <laughs> right? And what I'm getting at and what this person was getting at is, well, you know, when I say he's not the son of God, I mean something different from scripture, from what scripture says he is. What a ridiculous response that would be. You know, people would laugh at me and rightly so. No, when you find yourself just blatantly and explicitly contradicting a very clear, straightforward statement in scripture, no, the burden, I'm sorry, is now on you to explain why. You can't turn around and say that the other person is committing the equivocation fallacy. I just find that just, again, an incredible thing to say. Mm. Now, with your other question, the one you just asked um, about, yes, will the language ever be strong enough? The fact is no. For some people who are committed to a tradition, and this happens in many debates, not just this debate, but specifically here, the language cannot ever be strong enough for them. Yeah. I could point to a billion passages that use destroy, consume, utter death, utter destruction, abolish, I could point to passages that say, be no more. <laughs> and what are they going to say? Well, it's figurative. Oh, it's just referring to from the perspective of the saved, the wicked will be no more. Um, it's being used in, you know, another sense because the word is polysemous. Um, you know, people harp on the fact that destroy does not mean annihilate. You know, apollomy ap does not mean annihilate. And in one sense, that's true, depending on how we define annihilate. But, for some people, it makes no difference. There could be there could be passages that really just say annihilate, right. and they're going to have the same response to that that they have to everything else. Well, annihilate is being used in a figurative sense. You know, there could be a passage that says, "And the wicked will be burnt up; they will be annihilated, and they will never exist again." <laughs> and they're going to say, well, "Well, yes, they won't exist from the perspective of the same." <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, it's just a, a figurative way of saying it. So. Here's a just practical advice for anyone listening. If you're a conditionalist, when you run across one of these people and you sense a pattern that 
anything you throw at them, they'll just they're they're going to explain away or they're going to wave off with their hand. It's probably a good you know it's probably a good time to end the discussion because you've run into someone who I'm sorry to say is at least at this point is not interested in taking uh, those scriptures seriously. They're really just interested in winning a debate or or defending their traditional point of view. Yeah, I think that's good advice. Uh, Joey, is there any thoughts you have on this before we move on? Oh, I mean, that's that's clear in a number of writings I've come across where uh, one blog post, for example, someone made the case that destruction doesn't mean annihilation because they give this example. If a mansion burns down, the matter that the mansion was made of, you know, like the atoms, still ex- it still exists even though the mansion is completely – it's destroyed, but it doesn't cease to exist. Therefore, annihilation is not true. And I'm not kidding. That really was the actual metaphor used. <laughs> yeah. And even in more scholarly writings, I've seen such things come up. The argument that, you know, when you kill someone, like, their body hasn't really been annihilated because the atoms still exist. Right. Like, this isn't, like, actual people with PhDs writing this. Uh, uh, WGT Shedd makes an argument in uh, The Doctrine of Endless Punishment. It, you know, its atoms don't cease to exist, so death doesn't mean annihilation. Right. And you're just like... Really? First, yeah, it's like there's so many logical fallacies there. Like, I devote a whole section of uh, you know my tome to that this idea of you know the law of conservation of matter, and nothing's really annihilated. Therefore, annihilationism can't be true. So everyone still exists consciously. Right. It, it is silly, and, and I'm going to ask you a question that I didn't have prepared, but just dawned on me in a second. But but another example of what you're talking about is um, uh, what, what's what's the, the the author of the tectonics website? Um, uh, J.P. Holding. Holding, right. Uh, in, in his in his case, he, he cites a passage that talks about the oil um, that was poured out on Jesus' head, and 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 the word there is said. It said they ask him why he's wasting it, and the word waste there is a, is a polyme, if I recall correctly, and and he says the oil doesn't cease to be oil. You know, <laughs> but but look, it's gone. It's disappeared. Even even if it's even if you still want to say that that uh, chemically speaking, it remains oil after it's soaked into Jesus' scalp and hair. It's gone. It's disappeared. Um, I, I just find that 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 kind of argumentation really silly. But but let let's settle something because this is keeps coming up in my discussion with with Hiram on Facebook and stuff like that. When we say annihilate, and I understand Ronnie, you you tend to steer away from that word for this very reason. But what is it? Uh, I'll pose this to you, Joey. What is it that, you, that we mean when we say that the wicked are going to be annihilated? Do we mean that they're going to be zapped and instantaneously disappear out of existence, that their atoms are going to, uh, you know, dissolve into the ether of the universe or something? What do we mean when we say they're going to be annihilated? And why do you think that we, that historically this position has adopted the word annihilate? What we mean is, you know, while that could happen, like you're saying, like that by no means has to happen. We're just making the case that essentially... Think of how an atheist views death and what happens when you die. Like, you know, there's no, you don't have a mind. You can't think. You can't feel. You have absolutely no conscious or awareness of anything. You, you know, you're simply a corpse. Mm. That's essentially what we're saying happens to people that they have no, they can't be tormented because, like, if you poke a corpse with a knife or, you know, set it on fire, no matter what you do to it, it's not going to feel pain or think or anything. It's, it's just inert matter. Like mm. That yeah, you know, that's all that we necessarily are saying now. Whether or not you know the atoms and stuff are destroyed, like that could happen, and that makes perfectly good sense to me. But it doesn't have to happen. Like 
And that's where the logical fallacy comes into play because they look at this, well, even if they're totally made like a corpse, you know, that, and they burn up, the atoms are still there. Well, the atoms were there before God created man, but, you know, man couldn't feel anything when there was just a collection of atoms that weren't turned into a man. Hmm. So, so we're not saying that they're gonna disappear, uh, in that sense. We're saying that they're gonna be rendered utterly lifeless and inanimate. Maybe, maybe that's the right word to use. Is it? In, 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 inanimation. Maybe that's what we should call ourselves. Inanimationists. I mean, Ronnie, I know that you steer clear from the word, but I, I think I asked you this once on my blog or, or something. Why is it that, uh, that if that's what we mean by annihilate, which, you know, some people misunderstand, why do we, why is that word used in the first place? Well, I, I can't say for certain why people, uh, you know, why self-styled annihilationists uh, agree to call their own view that. I, I think that's a mistake uh, for a number of reasons I, I mentioned on my blog. But, um, I mean, it's fine so long as you're clear on what it means. And I don't think it's a problem that, uh, you know, annihilationists have not been clear on what they mean. I mean, right. every time this discussion comes up, they always explain exactly what they mean. And it seems to just fall on deaf ears to the traditionalists. The traditionalists will, even after hearing that, just come back and say something along the lines of, well, you know, destroy does not mean annihilate. And, and of course, when they say annihilate, they actually mean like, you know, that every single particle is, you know, winked out of existence instantaneously or something like that. And, an interesting example, uh, and this is a, article that a lot of traditionalists will point to, oddly enough, it's uh, an article by Douglas by Doug Moo, and it's in Hell Under Fire called, I believe, Paul on Hell. And in that article, Doug Moo says something along the lines of, you know, the word alitheros, that's another word in the New Testament that's translated as destroy, and related words such as apollomy, he says, they never mean annihilate, you know, in in scripture and in the Septuagint, is that they never mean that. And then he makes this fascinating statement. <laughs> Doug Moo goes ahead and he explains what he believes these various words mean, you know, Eleutheros and Ptolemy. He says, <laughs> when biblical authors use these words, they mean what we would mean if we said something like, the tornado destroyed the house. <laughs> that basically, you know, even though there's, you know, maybe wood, you know, rubble and wood and so forth, that the structure that provides shelter for human beings, a house, has ceased to exist. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's just, it's just amazing. And so, you know, now when people ask me, well, what does annihilate mean? Or what does destroy mean? I just quote Doug Moo. I said, you know, this traditionalist, <laughs> he has it exactly right. That for something to be destroyed, it's like for a tornado to destroy a house. The house is gone. There is no more house for anyone to live in. Yeah, there may be you know, wood and panels and so forth, but the actual house has been destroyed. Has it been annihilated? Well, it depends on how you want to define that term. Yeah, I understand. And But but I'll answer my own question to say that I think that a, the word annihilationism was chosen is because all we're saying is they're going to be killed, but because traditionalists think that killed, at least with respect to the second death, means something other than killed, uh, you know, I think that we have kind of had to, as a movement, use a, a different word that might more properly communicate what it is that we're intending to communicate. But anyway, that aside, like, like, you know, as you've explained, you tend to avoid that language and that's fine. But I just wanted to make clear that to those listening, what it is that we're talking about when we say something's going to be annihilated. Um, 
Now, I want to move on to, at least briefly, um, Lazarus and the Rich Man. That came up in the Turton fan debate. And, you know, Ronnie, as you explained in that debate, you don't take that parable as being, uh, realistically speaking of the intermediate state. But, but Joey, you and I, if I understand correctly, are, are to some extent or another not entirely sold when it comes to physicalism. I don't want to misrepresent you, but you and I, I think, have both said we're kind of somewhere in between, not sure where we stand. And, and right. the question, and the, so the question that I want to ask you is, um, because you and I are at least open to the possibility of dualism, maybe to an extent that uh, Ronnie is not, um, if this is somewhat realistic of the intermediate state, um, that, po- that might pose a problem. Because in, in the debate, Ronnie explained to Turretin Fan that the reason, the point of raising the wicked from this intermediate state would be so that they could be uh, judged and punished. But if this passage is to be taken um, as to any extent, realistically describing the intermediate state where they are being punished, then then does to Ronnie's point that he made in the debate actually make sense? Does it make sense to raise somebody who's already being punished from the dead only to be judged and punished again? Oh, it very much does make sense. Uh, I think Edward Fudge brought this up in your interview with them earlier. Um, he brings up the case of let's say somebody had um, you know committed uh, you know killed a hundred children or something. And he's on death row, and he gets deathly ill. Now, we're, you know, he's going to be executed, but instead of just letting him die, you know, a, a kind of yucky death, you know, you make sure he's in full health so that when the day of his execution comes, he can be executed, you know, by the state. The idea being that even though in that sense he actually ends better off than if, you know, he had been uh, left to die of natural causes, which wouldn't be the case here. But the idea is that it's the imparting of justice, you know, by the judge, like, Someone has to be there to declare the person guilty and to execute the sentence, this case being God. Um, that, that's one major thing. Uh, one reason why the resurrection specifically has to happen, why you can't just leave them to be, you know, in Hades to be burned for a while and then just poof out, is because when people commit evil deeds, they're not only doing it against God, but they're doing it against his people as well. Mm. And, you know, when they do it against his people, they're also doing it against God. So only the only way you can have it to where all the people who have, you know, ever been wronged by the wicked and so forth, you know, why, you know, the, all the people, all the Diedrich Bonhoeffers who stood up against Adolf Hitler can see Hitler being judged. The only way that can happen where everyone's there and everyone can praise God for his justice is after everyone's already been born and then died, and the only time everyone who's been born is going to be all together is at the resurrection. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really good argument, and and you know even, even we don't even have to go so far in the analogy of the person on death row to talk about them being cared for, uh, or or let's say that they died of natural causes in the prison, they're going to be resuscitated only to be killed later. You know, but, but we don't even have to go that far. The, the simple fact that they're imprisoned. Uh, until the time that, uh, that the, um, death is brought about means that there's a sense in which they're being punished, but it's not the punishment that they've been prescribed, right? I mean, when, when, when a, when a judge lays down a verdict and says that they're guilty and, and they're sentenced to death by electrocution, they're not sentenced to 18 months in prison followed by, the, uh, you know, execution. Their sentence is execution, and yet they're imprisoned until that happens. So, th- so even if there is this intermediate state, which is t- to some extent or another punishment and confinement or whatever, um, that doesn't mean that it's the punishment uh, that awaits them. That, that, that it's that it's that it properly um, that it properly punishes sin. 
you know. Um, so yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, moving on, you know, we've, we've talked a lot of things, uh, talked about a lot of the things that were said in the Turton fan debate. Let's move to mine with Hiram. And I want to first talk about his opening argument, uh, what he called profound soteriological implications. You know, he said, number one, man cannot perfectly satisfy the retribution required by the law, so he must exist forever. Um, number two, uh, and this was really the same, I don't know why he called it two different things, wicked must exist forever because infinite debt can never be paid off. Three, and this is something that uh, is sort of implied, is that he... he he, he quoted passages about eternal prison, eternal fire, second death. These things can only be reconciled together if the wicked exist forever. And number four, the fate of the wicked must be the same as the fate of the demons, which is eternal torment. So let, let's talk about these one by one. Um, it seems to me that in this argument, Hiram shares an assumption that it seems like every traditionalist I've spoken to shares, which is that punishment, at the very least the final punishment of the wicked, has to be, uh, is by definition, the infliction of suffering. Um, and so therefore, if, a, if an infinite debt is required, it requires an infinity of suffering. Do, do you find that this assumption is, is also made? And, and what do you make of it, Ronnie? Yeah, I, I actually believe that Turtenfed made the same assumption in referring to the Matthew 25:46 passage. Um, and, you know, many traditionals do the same thing. They say, oh, there, it says right there, everlasting punishment and we all know what that is you know the, they just assume going in that the punishment is torment or that the punishment is suffering and so yeah if your question is is that common yes it's very common i see it all the time so what do you make of it i mean how, is, is it the case that punishment by definition uh is consciously ongoingly experienced well i mean obviously not there's well, the punishment for some sins is pain. The punishment for certain, uh, in certain contexts is some sort of suffering. You know, scripture describes many different types of punishments for sin. So you have people being struck blind. You have people being made barren. You have people's entire family line being wiped out. You have entire nations being wiped out. Yeah, so there's many possible types of punishment and scripture describes a number of those punishment the question is how does scripture describe final punishment and it overwhelmingly and i would say unanimously describes it as death as destruction as um again consumption abolition and so forth and yes those things may involve a measure of physical pain and suffering you know very few people will deny that but the actual punishment is death. The wages of sin is death. So the ultimate, you know, the ultimate punishment, the most lasting punishment, um, is death. The actual deprivation of life. Okay, so, uh, Joey, uh, I'm gonna cite somebody here. You're probably familiar with this. Uh, Saint Augustine, um, he wrote in The City of God that where a very serious crime is punished by death, and the execution of the sentence takes only a minute. No laws consider that minute as the measure of the punishment, but rather the fact that the criminal is forever removed from the community of the living. Now, I, I quote that because the question I have for you is, uh, let's assume, and I, I don't know that all of us would actually make this assumption, but let's, just, let's assume for the moment that, in fact, uh, sin against an infinitely holy God requires an infinite punishment. Um, could a death 
like St. Augustine seems to admit, qualify, even a death that is very brief in the amount of time that it takes to inflict, could that in fact uh, be a punishment that uh, that in measure um, is an eternal punishment that can pay for an eternal crime? Well, yeah, I mean, sure, because if the person is completely destroyed, you know, annihilated, as it were, and never comes back ever, they're, you know, that they're, there's no, yeah, I mean, yeah, it could because it's an eternal punishment. Like, it's a, the punish, like the, they're punished in one moment, yes, but the punishment, the result, lasts forever. Right. You know, it, it's funny. I actually, if I remember correctly, when I listened to the argument, the debate between Glenn Peoples and somebody else from Theology Web, the guy that he actually argued against tried to say that a death sentence uh, is actually a, not as bad a punishment as a lifetime of imprisonment, imprisonment or something like that. But that's right, just, some, yeah. I mean, it's it's so silly. When 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 we talk about capital punishment, are we talking about the infliction of pain during the ca- the capital punishment, or are we talking about the death that it inflicts? You know, it seems to me to be so obvious. So I, I guess the question is, well, I guess we've answered the question. It, it seems to me that right off the bat, if we can if we can argue. Uh, successfully that the Bible prescribes death as the punishment for sin, then um, then we escape the uh, soteriological implications that um, Hiram argued for, because we do think that it's a punishment that uh, for for an infinite debt, you know. But um, and I'm going to turn to you now, Joey. Uh, he, he he his argument isn't based solely on uh, punishment requiring suffering. He also cited a few passages that talk about prison. Uh, Matthew 5, 23 to 26, Matthew 18, 23 to 25, Luke 12, 57 to 59, um, where it talks about, you know, never, not paying off, uh, not getting out of the prison until you've paid off the last cent, last cent. And he's saying that these, in order to reconcile these passages with other passages, uh, that seem to talk about destruction, we've got to understand the destruction as something other than the kind of destruction we talk about, just so that they can be in prison forever according to these passages. Do you think that these passages are justifiably taken literally? Do you think we should take them literally in the way he's arguing for? I think it's quite understandable that one would. Um, yeah, you know, I bring them up, you know, in my uh, The Bible Teaches Annihilationism. They are, I think, surprisingly strong arguments for traditionalism, but they're by no means insurmountable because, like, I get why they reason as they do. You know, like in the case of the unmerciful servant, you know, the person owes this debt that they could never pay off in a million years. I think someone did the math and it would take, like, I don't know, many hundreds of thousands of years or something. And, uh, you know, they're thrown into prison, the idea being that they're there forever from an earthly sense because they're, uh, you know, they can never pay it off and that we should look at that in the eternal way. That makes sense to me, but I think we can justify taking it less literally for a number of reasons. Um, the first being that, well, actually, this is in one way taking it more literally. As you brought up in the debate, in real life, if someone owed that big of a debt, they'd eventually be freed because they die. Mm. Now that's that is how they would pay off the debt essentially. Because once they're dead, you know what can you do? You know, sell their organs maybe and get some of the money back. I mean, you know, in that situation, that's how they're freed from the debt. But it's not freedom for them. It's not a relief for them because you know they're gone. Like the worst thing that could have happened to them has happened. Mm. Um, you know, in that case, it represents. It represents somebody who has nothing to look forward to until death, and death isn't something to look forward to. So even, yeah, and that too could be put on an eternal scale, because that's essentially what we believe happens. Um, 
and other things that can be brought up is just simply what is Jesus trying to say, for example, in the parable of the unmerciful servant? His point isn't, you know, what's going to happen in the next life, although that there could be implications there from what's said. The point is, if you don't forgive, then the much bigger debt you owe is not going to be forgiven. Right. And, um, you know, parables, as I bring up here, some of the parables have almost nothing in them actually transfers over. I bring up the parable of the fish in Matthew 13, 47 through 50. Um, in that parable, it just, it's very brief. It speaks of a fisherman. He catches fish. Uh, the bad fish he throws away. The good fish he keeps. Now, the good fish represent the saved, but you do not want to be a fish <laughs> the fisherman catches. <laughs> just think about it. It's like, either way, you get killed. And in fact, because I don't know what fishing culture was back in the day, for all I know, they might even throw the bad fish back in the water. I don't know if they do or not, but in that case, you'd be better off being the bad fish. But Jesus' sole point is that the good are kept and the bad are thrown away. Nothing else in that entire parable applies to the saved because we don't want to be fish who are skilled and eaten. You right. Know what I mean? Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, one of the things that strikes me is that when I asked Hiram in what sense the furnace of fire passages apply to the fate of the wicked, and, of course, in a recent blog post that we'll be talking about shortly, he uh, has kind of changed his uh, his understanding of the furnace of fire passages. But at least in the debate, he said that the way in which they apply, in the way in which these being burned up and reduced to nothing except ashes passages apply is that they were an analogies or symbolically described their fate uh, and therefore we don't actually have to think that they will come to an end. But but Ronnie, I, I turn to you here. If, if he can say that we can take furnace of fire passages to be symbolically describing uh, the eternal torment of the wicked, couldn't we just say that these passages that talk about being in prison until you've paid the last penny also are symbolic of uh, coming to an end? Yes, we could say that. <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, I, I just—it just seems to me that that they—they they just seem to be so inconsistent in their argumentation. I mean, no, d- no, I, I agree. Yeah, it's—it is very inconsistent to want to push the prison analogy uh, to, to the level that he wants to push it. I mean, it clearly is a parable. Yeah. Well, well, th- I do want to ask one more question though, which is, um, you know, you, you look at uh, Isaiah where it says he was, um, where it says that the Jesus would be pierced for our transgressions by his stripes we are healed you know Hiram tried to argue that and I think quite unsuccessfully that Christ's suffering um, was the punishment for sin and I kind of got I pressed him and then later he said that his, his, his the punishment that he in, that he endured was both suffering and death but still if we're arguing that the punishment for sin is death and not Suffering that would have to be endured for eternity to to, qual- uh, to qualify. What do we make of ba- a few passages, at least, which seem to say that Christ, it was by Christ's suffering that we were healed, rather than by His death, which obviously is the preponderance of the text. It would see here. Here's here's my struggle with saying that His suffering was part of the atonement process, uh, and I'm willing to be corrected. But you know the. <laughs> if he said it's finished. In fact, this was something that Hiram said. He said it is finished before he died. And if we're to take that to mean that uh, that that means it was a suffering that paid for sin, then it was actually Hiram's uh, position that was um, that made his death arbitrary and un- unnecessary. And then I think of uh, the Mormons, you know, who who think that Jesus paid for sins when he sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, when, when we make 
Christ, the, the punishment that Christ endured, his suffering primarily rather than his death, that seems to me a, a much, much bigger problem than what is being accused of us. How, how do you handle all this, Joey? Well, that's definitely true. Um, you know, because, like you say, if that's the case, why did Jesus die? You know, and just scripturally speaking, it, like Ronnie said, it's whenever we speak of the atonement, it's always the death that comes up. And even when suffering comes up, for example, you know, you brought up Isaiah 53, it also speaks of his death. Like, it's not as though, you know, his suffering, you know, healed us, but so did his death. Like, it, he, di- he suffered in his death, but it was his death that ultimately did it. Now, as for the it is finished line, I mean, I would just make, you know, the same claim that I made for, you know, the issues of when people are called dead. It's like, Jesus is about to die. He's drawing his very last breath. So, I mean, yeah, he says it is finished one breath before it actually is. I mean, are we, are we so <laughs> hyper literalist that we're going to be like, no, 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 it was, it's not finished till after he dies. So he can't say that till after he rises again. I mean, of course not. Like, you know, he's, he did everything he needed to do. Like everything he needed to do was completely finished. It's just a matter of taking that one last breath or not taking it. That would make it happen even sooner. So yeah, from that perspective, yeah, he said it's finished a moment before it was, but, you know, so what? Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, as Hiram admitted, the death that he thinks paid, paid for sin entailed both suffering and death, okay? And what I find interesting is that it's that it's that which traditionalists are forced to deny, that the eternal destruction of the, the eternal torment, in their view, of the wicked implies it has suffering, but not the death that Jesus died. And that, to me, is actually a much bigger problem um, than anything that is alleged of us. But but let's move on now and talk about another tier or another plank in his argument, which is the fate of the demons. Um, I was glad that days before the debate, I think, you guys asked me about this so that I could prepare for it. Um, he, he, Ronnie, let me propose this to you. What about the passages that um, talk about demons asking if Christ had come to torment them before the time? Do, do we have any reason to believe that the torment being spoken of is eschatological, uh, that is a lake of fire into which the devil is going to be thrown? Or, or do we have reason to believe that maybe it's something something else? Well, I mean, there's a, there's so many things to say to this. And I actually think you you did cover this in your debate, I believe, in, in, your, uh, in your rebuttal. So... Um, I think that actually sufficiently answered it. Um, if I could add anything, I don't know if I'm adding anything that you didn't say. Um, first of all, again, many traditionalists don't deny that the devils or the, you know the demons will suffer torment. Um, but if you look at the passage, it mentions nothing about duration. It never says anything about you know being tormented forever. So. That's a perfectly acceptable way to me, at least, to harmonize the passages where they say, have you come to destroy us? And the passages where they say, have you come to torment us? Uh, because in the process of destruction, there may well be um, torment involved. So that's one thing. Secondly, and you know, I, I know different people have different opinions about what I'm about to say, but it might not be a good idea to always take what demons say at face value. Hmm. Um, in other words, demons are known to lie. And so you should take some of these direct quotes from demons, possibly with a grain of salt. Um, yeah. yeah, I understand. But but I think you said it well. Even if, as I tried to lay out a, ca- lay out a case in, in my rebuttal, um, and that largely came from 
our friend Joey here's tome, um, there's a good good case, I think, to be made that the torment that they're referring to is not, in fact, eschatological. But as you said, even if we want to say it is, we're, it says nothing about duration. So, yeah, I think, I think that we're absolutely right. Now, um, now I want to move on to Revelation 20. Um, and talk about this briefly. Hiram said during cross-examination uh, that when death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, it means they're no more. Um, when I pressed him on the torment of the harlot, at first he wanted to explain that by no more it means from the perspective of the saved, and yet he admitted that the city represented by the harlot will not go on existing for eternity in some separate place uh, from the righteous. Do you think we should understand the imagery of the lake of fire as simply removing death and Hades from the presence of God and from the saved, such that the saved will never face death and Hades, but... I don't know what the the wicked who death and Hades gave up will be thrown back into them or something. What do you what do you make of this? Yeah, I mean, I can't say that that's absolutely logically impossible. But I mean, what would we say then? That when they're like the fire, they they de- they keep dying, and then what? They they rise again and die and rise again and die. Or, yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty. Even most traditionalists, you know, when they're pressed on that, will make the point. It's like, yeah, it's saying that death and Hades you know, are gone and no more because, you know, the Bible elsewhere says that death, you know, it'll be abolished or it'll be rendered powerless under some translations. And the thing about something like death is, unless we're to say it's a creature, which some one or two in, like, that I've read have, uh, unless we're to say it's a creature, then just by not being able to kill anyone, it literally ceases to exist given what death is. Yeah. So now moving on, I want to talk, we, we talked about this briefly earlier about what it means to be dead or, or what it means when people that are still alive are spoken of as dead. Um, but, but Hiram has tried to argue a lot both during the debate and afterwards. He's tried to argue that we don't properly understand the meaning of dead. And one of the arguments that he makes um, is that in Genesis, uh, in, in Genesis when it's, when, when God says in the day that you will eat from this, you shall surely die. Uh, that if God isn't a liar, then Adam must have died uh, on the very day that he ate of the fruit. Um, hi, let's turn to you, Ronnie. Uh, since Joey asked the last, asked, answered the last question, um, what do you what do you make of that? Is it true that in order to properly understand that passage from Genesis, uh, Adam must have, in fact, died in some sense, even though he wasn't dead uh, the day that he ate from the fruit? Well, no, and. I believe you mentioned this before. I mean, this is something that, I mean, a number of traditionalists concede. Um, yeah, I mean, I know a common response is that, oh, he did die spiritually, right? right. Um, even though the text, you know, nowhere says that. But um, many people interpret it as, uh, many people interpret this passage as using what's called a prolepsis. And you guys actually mentioned this before. You didn't use the word. You know, and prolepsis is when you speak of something using the present tense, but you're speaking of a future reality. So it's like, you know, if maybe back when you're in high school and you come home with a, you get your report card and it's, you know, a D and you say, I'm dead. Well, no, you're not really dead. You're using, uh, you're using the present tense to describe something that will happen in the future. And so many people understand this simply as God using, uh, you know, proleptic speech. On the day you eat of it, you will die. Um, and I know you, you know, you have other things to say about that. Uh, there are examples of prolepsis being used in scripture, and this is something that, uh, Leroy Froome mentions in his own tome, you know, his 2000 plus page work on conditional immortality. <laughs> yeah, he's a beast. Um, <laughs> he, uh, you know, there's a passage in Exodus 1233. I, I believe literally the, the Egyptians, they cry out, 
you know, we be all dead men. I believe that's you know, probably King James. You know, we are dead men. Um, but they're they're talking about you know <laughs> what they anticipate is going to happen to them. Um, you know, Pharaoh tells Moses in Exodus ten twenty eight. He says, "On the day that you see my face, you will die." It's a very similar language. Now, someone could say, "Well, yeah, that was Pharaoh. He was just uh, you know he's not God, and you know." He, he made a threat that he couldn't live up to or something along those lines. But no, more reasonably, Pharaoh was just using a, a common expression, a proleptic expression to say, basically, the day you do this, you're a dead man. You know, the mm. day you do this, sentence will be passed. Um, I don't think God was speaking to Adam and Eve using code language, you know, <laughs> and that they were surprised when they didn't drop dead. And he said, aha, but you actually are dead in a spiritual sense. I, mm. I don't think that's what's going on there. I think they understood very clearly what he meant, that they would literally, in a very literal sense, you know, be punished with death for that transgression. Sure. And and just to add a, another possible understanding there, because I think you're right. I think it makes perfect sense to be speaking pro, proleptically or, or whatever the word was that you used. I'm, I'm not uh, – <laughs> uh, my lexicon is not very big. Um, but but there's another explanation from Answers in Genesis. Um, you know, we're not all on the same page, I think, in, in our understanding of creation. But interestingly, I think Hiram and I are – um, we're both young earth creationists and, and so we're probably both fans of answers in Genesis. And in a completely unrelated, well, sort of unrelated, um, article, here's a quote, here's a quote from what they write. They write, the phrase beyom, which is what is translated on the, on the day, on the very day, is therefore sometimes rightly translated as when, referring to a period longer than a day, as in the NIV in both Genesis 2-4 and Genesis 2-17, Numbers 7-10 and 84 and elsewhere. Um, so, so the point that I'm getting is that Answers in Genesis gives ample evidence that the phrase beyond does not mean on the day. It just simply means when. So I think that there are a number of uh, um, uh, possible inter- interpretations of this text that don't require that we understand them to have died at that moment. However... Um, Joey, what about, you know, passages where Paul says that you are dead in your sins? Um, there does seem to be a lot of places where people are spoken of as dead in the present tense. Is, is it, are, is our answer really sufficient to challenge that? I think largely so. There is one more point I can add, um, along those lines. The fact that not only are the, the dead are said to be, you know, those who are gonna, you know, the lost, they're called dead, and we're called living. You know, but here's the thing. People will say, oh, those are, pre- those literally are present tense because we're alive to the extent that we know God now and we'll be more alive later. And they're, you know, kind of dead now because they're already separated from God and they'll be more dead later. But the thing is, if that's what dead and alive mean, which is, I don't know of any other way this has ever been interpreted by the traditionalists, you know, the whole point is, it's present tense because they're separated from God and death means separation. If that's the case, then we're both alive and dead. Like, it's not right to just call us living because mm. we're we're alive to an extent, but we're also still dead. Like, we we like to think, you know, we have a perfect relationship with God now. It's like, we don't. We're guaranteed to have a perfect relationship with God. Like, there are times, you know, sometimes we still sin. We don't hear God's voice as clearly as Adam and Eve did or even as their kids outside of the garden did. You know, it's we're only kind of alive, so we're also kind of dead, if we're going to say that that's what the Bible means when it's referring to them in the present tense. 
Yeah, I think that's a fair point. And, 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 and the last thing that I'll add just to top all this off is, you know, to go back to, to go back to Hiram's point about death and destroy and stuff like that. And by the way, I'm not laughing at him or anything. It's just, it's, it's funny because it seems so obvious to me that if he's going to use the word polysemus to say that these words have multiple meanings, and even if, even if we want to assume that, that, that separation, that, that death at least one meaning means separation, that doesn't necessarily follow that that's the kind of death that's going to happen in the second death. It seems to me that he's the one that's violating the idea of words being polysemous in meaning. <laughs> you know what I mean? So. Okay, there you have it. That was hour two of our conversation. Um, stay tuned for episode 74, uh, which I'll publish perhaps tomorrow, where we'll discuss some of the post-debate conversa- conversations that took place. Until then... 